comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 17, and we're going to be looking at verses 22 through 27. So if you have your Bibles, open with us there. Beginning in verse 22, the Holy Scriptures read, And as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, Go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me and for me as we go into God's word today? Father, we ask again you would be our teacher through your spirit. Help me to speak your words, not mine. Father, strengthen your church through your word, for it is nourishment. It is spiritual food for us. And so, Father... What is not food are man's thoughts, my thoughts or anyone else's. So we ask that today we would only hear your thoughts as revealed in your written word. So help me to be faithful to that. Help me to articulate it clearly without distraction, whether that be distractions in our own minds or distractions in this room, anything like that, Father. We just ask that your word would be held up high as we hold up Christ highly as we worship and honor you. Help us now to understand this and live by it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Meeting the king or queen of England isn't just an everyday normal affair. In fact, if you're going to do so, there's several requirements you have to follow. Truth be told, there's actually more than several requirements. There's actually nine of them. And here they are. First off, rule number one is no touching. You do not touch the king or queen. And this actually dates back to medieval times where kings and queens, they were seen basically as divinely appointed by God. And so to touch them was akin to touching God, which is something you don't do. So when it comes to kings and queens, rule number one, you don't touch them. The second rule is you don't show up without a gift. And sorry, guys, but a gift card doesn't count here. You actually have to be creative and think, what would they like? For example, if the king or queen is paying a visit to your hometown or your country, you are expected to find a gift that reflects your local culture. So for us Minnesotans, uh, Minnesotans, we might say, you might consider getting them a uh, hockey, something with hockey, something with loons, which are evil creatures. I don't know why you would do that. Vikings, lakes, or just something to do with ice, because we tend to have a whole lot of that around here for most of the year. The third rule is when you are in their presence, you stand at attention, which means you slouchers are going to have to work extra hard to make sure you're not slouching when you stand before the king and queen. The fourth rule, and you probably actually already know this one, but when you approach them, you're supposed to bow before them to show respect. The fifth rule is that you need to make sure you follow the dress code, which means no shorts, no sandals, and no t-shirts. And the sixth rule is that you never call them by their first name, and especially not a nickname. How do you address them then? As 
your majesty or your liege or whatever you want to say, you know, something fancy like that. The seventh rule, and you might have heard as a kid, which is you only speak when what? Spoken to, which means that if you are in the king or queen's presence, you are going to have to get really, really good at Little Red Barn until they talk to you. If you don't know what that game is, then you had a sad childhood. The eighth rule is don't eat before they do. You wait until they sit down and they begin to eat, and that signals to you that you may now eat. You don't walk in as they're handing out the food and just jump right into the food. The ninth rule and the final rule is you never turn your back to them, ever. Even when you leave the room, how do you leave? Well, like this. You walk backwards as you look at them. You must always be facing their direction, even when leaving. Now, why are all these rules in place? It's because royalty occupies a position that is superior to that of the commoner. Their position is superior to that of the commoner. It's less so today, but through all throughout human history, that is how it was viewed. And so they must be treated differently. They must be treated with respect. However, not everyone's required to follow these rules. Did you know that? Not everyone is. There's one special group of people who don't have to follow it at all. And who is that? Their children. They don't have to follow all these rules of etiquette. They can run and jump on daddy's lap when they feel like it. They can run and give a hug. They can call them mama and dada, and it's not a problem. If an adult tried that and went and jumped on the king's lap, especially in medieval days, they would probably be swiftly executed for doing something so disrespectful. But for their children, it's a totally different story. They are welcomed to come before the king and queen and hug them and draw close to them, touch them, and talk to them as needed. They're exempt from this because of the special relationship that they have with them. With this concept in mind, our passage this morning, we find some rules and regulations that apply to every single person across the board, but with one exception. And that exception has to do with the same sort of thing, being children. See, what we're talking about here isn't just any ordinary old human king, but we're talking about the divine king of the universe who is God himself, who is so much more higher and so much more esteemed than just puny little fallen human kings, isn't he? And the list of rules and regulations for this king are much, much longer than just nine. How long are they? Well, if you count all the ones up in the Old Testament, it comes out to about 613 rules and regulations that you have to follow before this king. I can't even remember the nine. Uh, And if you break any of them, it's a very serious matter. In fact, it's a potentially life-threatening matter. And yet in our passage this morning, we find the one who is not only exempt from following these rules and regulations, But this person makes so the rest of us are immune from having to follow them as well. This is no little accomplishment. In fact, I would venture to say it's the most remarkable accomplishment in all of human history. For in Christ, we are adopted into the king's family as his sons and daughters, not just servants. That That would be wonderful enough, going from the enemies of the king of the universe, which all sinners are apart from Christ, Just becoming his servants would be remarkable, wouldn't it? Of course that would. That would be an infinitely higher escalated position than what we deserve. But no, in Christ, we become sons and daughters of the cosmic king. And that comes by his grace when he adopts us into his family. 
That adoption comes with three things, and here they are. Our adoption into Christ's kingdom comes with a cost of freedom, and third, a commission. Only probably Becky knows how much it bothered me that that outline is one word from being perfectly alliterated. There is no word for freedom that starts with C. Anyways, we don't need it. Okay, cost, freedom, and commission. If you have your Bibles, look at Matthew 17, and we're going to look at verses 22 through 25. Somebody's going to come up to me after the service and be like, you could have used this word. I'm going to be like, I know it's going to happen. All right, verse 22. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. And when he came to the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From who do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? Now, in the last few chapters of Matthew's gospel, we've seen Jesus bring up this idea that he has to die, like a few times now. And it's something the disciples really, really struggled with. Like, they couldn't wrap their heads around it. If Jesus is the promised coming, conquering king of all the nations, what are you talking about he's going to die? How does that fit with it? If you remember in the last chapter, though, we saw a glimpse of them starting to get it as Peter recognizes that Jesus is the Christ. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And that's like a ding, ding, ding. You got it, Peter. Good job. But then what happened literally about four seconds later? Peter doesn't get it because Jesus says, I'm going to die. And Peter says, heaven forbid it, Lord. And how does Jesus then respond to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. And why did Jesus say that to Peter? Like you think of all of the harsh rebukes that Jesus gave, like even the Pharisees didn't get called Satan. Peter got the worst. Why? Because Peter was trying to be like Satan in telling Jesus that the path to the kingdom could skip the cross. But it couldn't, could it? And why not? Because if Christ had skipped the cross, it would be a kingdom without any citizens. None of us would make it. And why not? Because the cost to enter, it's way too high. None of us can ever pay that cost. What is the cost to enter Christ's kingdom? Perfect obedience to all of the rules and regulations, all 613. You have to follow them perfectly from the day you're born till the day you die. And if you break even one of them, you're out. Does that sound like something any of us can do? Not even a little bit. In fact, I don't think we could make it a whole day, let alone a whole lifetime. Anybody with an ounce of self-awareness recognizes and realizes that they're not the person they should be. Like, even atheists out there, non-believers, whoever, they're going to say, yeah, you know what, you're right. I'm not the person I should be. I'm working, I'm striving, you know, I've got flaws, I've got mistakes. But what do they usually do in light of those flaws and mistakes? They downplay it. They make excuses for it. Oh, everybody makes mistakes. Come on, we're only human. Anybody ever heard that before? How about all the time? But the Bible tells us that they're not just mistakes, right? They're sin. Sin is infinitely more serious than mistakes. What is sin? Sin is the willful violation of God's laws. The Bible tells us that sin is lawlessness. So what sin really is, if you take what the Bible says, sin is rebellion. It's high-handed treason against the cosmic king of the universe, who, for the record, happens to be all-powerful. Does that sound like a rebellion that's going to be successful? Not even a little bit. 
And this rebellion, this sin, it lives deep inside every human heart. We're born with it. It's there. Our culture, what's around us doesn't infuse it into us, right? Just look at any two-year-old. Sin is there. They don't have to learn the behavior. Look at any one-year-old. It's there. And this rebellion that lives deep inside of our hearts comes with a very serious consequence. What kind of consequence? Well, for starters, sin makes our lives worse. Sometimes, you know, you might be able to like steal something, get away with it, and it's like, sweet, I got that. But overall, no, sin is a lie. It makes things infinitely worse for us. Sin is why marriages fall apart. Sin is why, is why wars happen. It's the cause behind every murder, any, every theft, and every single assault. What sin is, is disintegration. It disintegrates everything it touches. Think about it. Look at the high rates of marital disintegration in our culture. It's not due to people falling out of love, right? That's victim mentality language. That's not why it happens. It's due always in some way, shape, or form to sin, whether it be pride, selfishness, or anger of one of the parties or both. In this life, it's not very hard to see how sin disintegrates everything it touches. However, sin doesn't just disintegrate things in this life, but the Bible tells us it disintegrates things in the life to come. And that's in part, in part, what hell is. It's perpetual, never-ending disintegration under the eternal, everlasting wrath of a holy, all-powerful God. That's what sin is. That's, that's what it is. And I don't have the time to explain this in great te- detail, but it's not hard to understand why this is the case. Think about it. We've all had bad days. Like anybody else? Right? A lot of people wake up with just like, I mean, you're grumpy. It's just not a good day. Like, it's like the birds are chirping and you're like, shut up. I don't want to hear it. We all have those. Some of us, it's more like bad months or maybe even bad years, but we've all had these. And during these times, we are miserable wretches to ourselves and everybody else around us. Now think about this for a minute. Imagine those bad days continuing on and on and on, growing like a snowball for all of eternity. Does that sound like something that would be pleasant? No, That sounds terrible. You know what that sounds like to me? That sounds like hell is what it sounds like to me. And that's exactly what hell is in part, not fully, but in part, that is exactly what hell is. Hell is the snowball of the depraved depraved fallen human machine growing on and on for eternity. C.S. Lewis, who was a wonderful theologian, here's what he had to say about this. He said, hell begins, I don't know where it went, Maybe Jacob can get it for us. Oh, I don't have it. I'll read it for you. Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others. But you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it. But there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. It is not so much a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. Now, don't misunderstand Lewis here. Lewis believes in a literal hell. He's not just saying hell is just an emotional bad day. That's not what, that's not what he's saying. He's giving us a glimpse into why one of the reasons hell is so bad. Okay, And it's because, one, Hell involves the ever-present wrath of a holy God upon sinful creatures, and that's the worst part about it. But Lewis's point is also true. In each of us, there is something growing that will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. 
And that hell that's within us prevents us from entering Christ's kingdom, which is coming one day very, very soon to this earth. And so this hell within us must be nipped in the bud. It has to be nipped. And when it comes to this nipping, there's only one thing that can properly do it. Can religious obedience nip the hell that is within our hearts? No, not even a little bit. Actually, what religion does is it makes it grow. What about being a good person and just living a good moral life? Can that nip it? Nope. That also makes it worse. That's like pouring gasoline on the fire. It's not going to make it better. The truth is, the reality is, nothing we can possibly do can nip the hell that is within our hearts. Nothing. Everything we do makes it worse. It doesn't matter if you follow 99% of God's rules and regulations. If you break even 1%, and just reality check here, nobody even gets close to this. But even hypothetically, if we only broke 1% of it, it would still leave the sin in our hearts unnipped. And this is why Jesus said back in Matthew chapter 5 that our righteousness must be how great? Greater than the greatest. Greater than the scribes and the Pharisees, which is a righteousness that's higher than any of us could ever possibly hope to have. And so what is the only thing then that can nip the ever-growing sin that is within the human heart? The Son of God. Look at verses 22 and 23. When it comes to breaking sin's powerful curse, there's only one antidote. There's only one antidote that is strong enough to nip it, and it's the blood of Christ. That's it. See, God tells us that the wages of sin is what? It's death, okay? And this death, it certainly includes physical death. It's appointed unto man once to die, and then comes the judgment. But it also includes perpetual never-ending, eternal death in the life to come in a place called hell. And yet in Christ, we find the perfect Son of God who lived the life you and I should have lived but didn't and died the death that you and I deserved but didn't. We find this in the dying Savior. And he does this, why? To free us from sin's curse, which then remarkably allows us to live freely as the sons and daughters of the king. And make no mistake, sin is bondage. We are all in bondage to sin. It's slavery to sin and the evil one, which is Satan himself. We are slaves of him. And if God is not our father, Satan is our father, Christ says. There's only two options, and Satan is an abusive father. You absolutely do not want him as your father because he will not allow you to live freely. In fact, he will chain you in your sin. This leads us to our second point. Our adoption into Christ's kingdom comes with a cost, and it comes with also a freedom. Matthew 17, 24 through 26, let's read those. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? Jesus said, yes. And when he came into the house, or Peter said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon, which is Peter's name, from whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him then, then the sons are free. In verse 24 and 25, I love this because we get another Peter moment. 
And Peter is a perpetual herp derp all throughout Matthew. He's just constantly getting his foot in his mouth. He's not getting it. He's dense as a doornail, which is wonderful because I have somebody to identify with now when I read the book of Matthew. But he over and over doesn't understand what he ought to understand. A lot of you are like, sweet, there's somebody like that who I can relate with as well. Now remember how we just discussed Peter's back and forthness on the identity of Jesus in, in the last chapter, right? One minute, one minute, Peter gets it super right, and then in the next, Peter gets it super, super wrong. Well, here is Peter getting it super wrong again. Here's how he got it wrong. In verse 24, the temple tax collectors, they come along to collect the tax. The- tax for the temple, which all good Jewish boys paid. This wasn't like the taxes the Romans did, all right? These tax collectors were good guys. They weren't like, oh, here comes the tax collectors. Mm -mm. That was the Roman tax collectors who they looked down on big time because they had no right in their mind to be taking tax from the Jewish people. But this was a tax that actually goes back to Exodus chapter 30. And it was a tax that was paid towards the temple, which every Jewish male would pay who was 20 years old or older. And if they didn't, Uh, Well, it came with the threat of divine plagues coming down upon them. So it was a very serious and important matter. And so along come these tax collectors to collect the tax from Jesus. And remember, Jesus by now in Matthew's gospel has already gotten a bit of a reputation when it comes to the temple. And how was his reputation viewed? What was his reputation about the temple? Was it good or bad? It was bad. Remember what he said in John 2? He says, tear this temple down. I'll raise it up in three days. And the idea of even suggesting that someone might tear the temple down, that was blasphemy in a Jewish person's mind. Now, the Jews obviously misunderstood Jesus there as he was speaking not of the temple, but of his body. But that wasn't the first time that Jesus spoke in a way that made people think that Jesus had a low view of the temple. For example, back in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus spoke of himself as being greater than the temple. That was a big claim in the Jewish mind, and that would have been appalling to them. And so these temple tax collectors come along, and most likely, most commentators think that they have like an agenda here. Remember, they're always trying to trip Jesus up in some way, shape, or form, like the people who are connected to the religious system. And so they come along, they're like, all right, let's see uh, how anti-temple this guy is. Does your teacher pay the tax? Does he, Peter? Hmm? And Peter quickly responds, most likely without thinking, which Peter often does. Oh, yes, of course he does. Yes, 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 he does. I'll, I'll go get it right now. And he goes, and before he even starts talking, Jesus, with his divine knowledge, knows, and he responds to the situation. It's pretty remarkable. Peter shows up, and before he even speaks, Jesus shows his divine miraculous powers by saying, what do you think, Peter? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? In which Peter responds with the answer from others, because it's obvious, right? Like if you know anything about monarchies and the way these things roll, you don't tax your kids and your family. They're immune. They're exempt from that. All the other peons and peasants, they pay the tax. That's how it worked. Okay, so if you were a child of the king, you didn't have to pay the tax. Do you see Peter's mistake now? In the last chapter, Peter recognized that Jesus was the son of the living God, and yet here he fails to recognize the consequences of that, the implications of that. Think about it. Why on earth would the son of the living God have to pay taxes to his father? It doesn't make any sense. And not only that, but think about this. Who is the Lord of the temple? It's Christ. All throughout the Old Testament, when you read about the servant of the Lord, when you read about the angel of Yahweh showing up, angel means messenger, by the way, 
that's talking about Jesus. That's the pre-incarnate Christ, the one who led them out of, out of Israel. That's Jesus who spoke to Moses on the mountain. It's Jesus who orchestrated and gave out the entire synagogue system, which then went into the temple system, and all the rules and regulations that went for that. So why in the world would Jesus be bound to pay the tax for that? Malachi 3.1 tells us Jesus, the pre-incarnate Christ, is Lord of the temple. And so it makes no sense that he would have to pay a tax to himself. You know what I mean? Like he'd pay in the tax, goes right back into his pocket. It doesn't make any sense. And so, yeah, Peter misses it again here in a big way. And so after correcting Peter's wrong thinking, Jesus drops a little truth bomb here that actually should make our heads explode a little bit with how remarkable it is. And if you look at verse 26, you can probably see it. When Peter said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the son is free. Is that what he says? Verse 26, when Peter said, from others, Jesus then said to him, then the son is free. Is that what he says? No, he doesn't. What does he say? Sons, then the sons are free. Do you see that? Do you see that not only here Christ says, is he the son of God who is free from the temple tax, but so are the sons and daughters of the kingdom. Don't miss how huge this is. So if you zoned out, zone back in for this part, okay? This is remarkable. If you read the book of Leviticus, which is no light reading by any stretch of the imagination, you will see in there all of the rules and regulations described there. And they were massive. They were extremely difficult to follow, especially if you're somebody like me who's very, you know, queasy around blood. They weren't at all easy to adhere to. And here Jesus says something remarkable. What does he say? He says, don't worry. I've got you. You're as free as I am. From all of that, You're free from it. And why can he say that? Well, for starters, as Malachi 3.1 says, he's the Lord of the temple. It's his temple. It's his rules. It's his party. He decides how it goes. And secondly, because he is the fulfillment of the temple system, all of it is fulfilled in Christ. And for that, you got to look at the book of Hebrews. Do you remember what Jesus said back about the law in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5? Well, I know a lot of you don't because a lot of you weren't here quite yet then. This was a little over a year ago. Uh, but that's actually a good reason for me to tell you, hey, all of our stuff's recorded online. Go listen to a few sermons a week. You'll be caught up to us in no time. Or study it on your own, whatever you got to do. And then when you get done with that, you can go listen to Jude and James, which we've been through. Because why not? All right, back to the point here, though. In Matthew f- chapter 5, Jesus said, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. A lot of people will act like the New Testament replaced the Old Testament. Did it? Not even a little bit. There's a common, I'm not going to say his name because I don't want to distract, but there's a common popular preacher. He's he's famous for recently saying we need to detach ourselves from the Old Testament. What? How do you preach the book of Matthew detached from the Old Testament? I have no clue whatsoever how to do it. Matthew, of all the Gospels, and remember the Gospels are largely speaking Old Testament books. That's what makes them so difficult to preach sometimes because they're Old Testament books. And out of those four Old Testament books, Matthew is by far the most Old Testament. And so you can't preach the Gospels, especially Matthew, without the Old Testament. So why are the sons free? It's not because the Old Testament laws were outdated and needed to go, not even a little bit. It was because simply Christ fulfilled them. How did Christ fulfill them? Well, as we said, the book of Hebrews. And the book of Hebrews is basically Leviticus 2.0. That's what it is. 
And in the book of Hebrews, it tells us that Christ is the new and better sacrifice. In fact, he's the final sacrifice. In Hebrews, it tells us how Christ is the new and better great high priest. And if he's that, which he is, for the record, why then would we need a temple? Why would we need a temple anymore if Christ is the new and better sacrifice, if he is the new and great high priest, the final high priest, who continues to serve as high priest forever, not just temporarily like the old sin-fallen priest did. They would serve for a time, and to make matters worse, those priests, they would have to keep giving sacrifices for themselves so that they wouldn't be struck dead by the holiness of God. But not Christ. He lived the perfect life that we should have lived, and because he did, he can serve as our great high priest. And then also, because he sacrificed his life, because he laid down his life, he is the perfect and final sacrifice unto which all the other sacrifices point. And so what do we do with this temple? Pack it up. Roll it away. And so goes the tax. The price has been paid. In Christ, his blood, he has fulfilled the payment that was owed for sin. And now he serves as great high priest before us. And because he does... Because he stands as our intercessor before the Father, we can run before him freely as the children of God. We don't have to be scared. We don't have to stand at attention, right? We can run before him. Here's what Hebrews 4 says. Let's read this now. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And here's the big takeaway. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in our time of need. Church, because of Christ, who is our great high priest, who is the perfect and final sacrifice, there is no longer a no-touching rule with God right? There is no longer a requirement to wear the right things before him or will be kicked out to bring gift after gift of religious and moral obedience in effort to appease him. We no longer have to stand at attention in fear and dread, but instead, what can we do? We can call out to him as Abba, Father, and at any time, and at any place, and he will hear our prayers. And why? Because Jesus was delivered into the hands of sinful men, as verse 22 says, and who was then killed and raised up on the third day. That's it. That is our righteousness. That is the reason we can be the sons and daughters of the king. And because of that, we can now live freely before God. Our sin created a debt that needed to be paid. None of us could pay it, not in a million lifetimes. But Christ paid it. And he paid it with his precious blood, his righteous blood. And because he paid it, we can live freely for him as we carry out his great commission, which leads us to our last point. Our adoption into Christ's kingdom comes with a cost, it comes with a freedom, and finally, it comes with a commission. Look at verse 27. This is Jesus talking to Peter. He says, However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. I'm sure you've all heard just wonderful sermons before about how this text shows that we need to be faithful in paying our taxes and be good citizens of the country. 
And while that is certainly true, it's not true because of this passage. That's true of other passages because that's not what this passage is saying, not even a little bit. So what is Jesus' point here about paying the temple tax? It's the same point that Paul makes in Romans 14, which we looked at a couple weeks ago in our Building Up One Another class. It's about giving up our rights for the sake of others, for the sake of the gospel. And boy, is this relevant right now in a culture where we are absolutely clinging to our rights with both hands and biting onto it at the same time. Look, don't get me wrong. In Christ, we are free. We are absolutely free. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. But with our freedom also comes a commission from Christ to be willing, if and when necessary, to set aside our freedoms Not just for the sake of getting beat up and tossed around. No, but for the sake of winning others to Christ. For the sake of the gospel. For the sake of bringing the message of salvation to those who are in darkness who need it most. Practically, what does this look like? Giving up our rights for the sake of the gospel. Looks like a lot of things. But the core of a lot of those things that we're talking about is the goal of not adding unnecessary offense to the gospel. Look, the gospel's already a massive horse pill. Okay? We don't need to take mud and dirt and rub it all over it and be like, here you go, swallow this, it'll save you. We don't need to do that, so let's not do that. And yet, how many churches and Christians have added unnecessary offense to the saving, powerful gospel of Jesus Christ? All the time. Oh, let me tell you, all right, you're here, you lost pagan, you hear about Jesus. Well, you can't wear that, all right? You can't eat that. You can't read. Oh, you read that. You can't read that. You can't drink that. You can't watch that. You can't listen to that. You can't, 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 can't. And pretty soon there's more than 613 laws that have been piled on that we're supposed to be free from. Let me ask you, church, are we under that anymore? Are we under the temple stuff? Because that's what it is. It's temple stuff. But even worse, it's not God's temple stuff. It's man's temple stuff. Are we under that? No, we're not. We are free in Christ. Let me ask you a question, whether it's social media, around the office, or just with your family at Thanksgiving or whatever, are you known more for your political beliefs or for your belief that Jesus is the Savior of all the world? Last time I checked, uh, that gospel message of salvation is something that both Republicans and Democrats desperately need, equally alike. Again, don't get me wrong, you're absolutely free to hold your political views and exercise your vote, but let me ask you, what is your goal? Transform society? Good luck with that. We're not called to that. We're not called to build the kingdom. We are called to bring kingdom citizens, people into the kingdom as citizens. How? One heart at a time as they surrender and bow the knee to Jesus Christ, who is the coming king, who will rule and reign. And so, no, we don't try to transform society. Yes, we need to be salt and light, but we primarily focus on transforming the hearts. Because if your goal is to transform the hearts, you're going to approach society, you're going to approach politics, you're going to approach all of this in a completely different way than you are if the gospel is your main priority. You want to see how Paul handled his freedom in Christ? Let's look at 1 Corinthians 9. Here's what he says. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people. Why? that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. That's almost exactly what Jesus is saying here in our passage this morning in Matthew 17, isn't it? It is. 
Yes, he says, you don't owe the temple, the temple tax. The sons are free. But you know what? Who cares, Peter? Pay the stupid tax because we don't want to offend over something so trivial. Just do it. Who cares? And so for Jesus, the temple taxpayers, uh, he knew that they were free, but he said, pay it anyways for the sake of the gospel. Now, there's a lot to say here. And my, 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 there's just not any time. And there's no Q&A today because of the baptism service, so we have lots of opportunity for fun misunderstandings with what's been said so far, don't we? Absolutely we do. So let's at least try to avoid one of the big misunderstandings. That's all we have time for. But it's this. Does this mean what we just talked about? Does it mean that only the gospel matters? As Christians, all this stuff about rules, regulations, laws, morality, all that stuff, just don't throw it aside. That's, that's irrelevant. All you need is just Jesus, man. That's it. Is that how we view this? No, we don't. Okay? That's not how we view it. That's, there's a whole lot of people out there who will try to sell you that junk, and that's not what we're saying here. What are we saying then? Let's be clear. We are saying, and this is really profound, the gospel's more important than less important things. Let me re-say that in a better way. More important things are more important than less important things. That's the two seminary degrees right there paying for itself, right? That's deep stuff. <laughs> but this is the point, right? Like the gospel is the main thing. You ever heard the expression, keep the main thing the main thing? How many churches don't keep the main thing the main thing? They get into all this side stuff where it's just like, what, what are you doing? No. Okay, maybe for a hobby, but that's not, not what church is for. We have to keep the main thing the main thing. This isn't complicated. It's simply telling us that as Christians, we must prioritize our commission to share the gospel and make disciples over holding fast to our freedoms. And so pragmatically, and this actually, this point I'm about to make, this actually fits really well with what Pastor Bob said last week. But let me ask you, am I free as an American, and remember, Americans are in the top 1%. I don't care if you're the poorest of the poor in this country. You're in the top 1% of all, rich pe- of all people who have ever lived when it comes to riches. Like, we got running water, okay? So, am I free to spend my money on a bigger house? As the, right, let's start with me as the pastor. Am I? Yes. Uh, how about for all of us? Yes. How about for the nice boat we always wanted? Am I free to do that? Yes. How about that car that has less gas mileage, less rust, and less dents? Am I free to do that? Absolutely, of course. The sons are free, by all means. However, you nervous? However, (laughs) if I'm going to be effective in fulfilling Christ's commission to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth, to bring the message of salvation and hope of Jesus Christ to others, am I going to have to sacrifice some of those things that I have a right to buy? You better believe it. Like, this stuff takes time. Time away from a job where I could make money to buy more things I want. It takes money, which I could spend on the bigger boat that I might not, might, right? We're not pushing legalism here. That I might not buy because I want to further the gospel. And here's the cool thing about this, the remarkable thing about this. When we make sacrifices for Christ, you know what we find out? It was no sacrifice at all, was it? But it was blessing, for he blesses us. 
And we can be absolutely confident, as Ephesians 4.19 says, and my God will supply all of your needs according to the riches in Christ Jesus. That doesn't mean, look, that you're going to, if you give a dollar to God, he'll give you five back every time, okay? We're not talking about the prosperity gospel. Last week, Pastor Bob mentioned we can't outgive God. And that's true if you rightly understand that expression, which isn't to say that if you give God a dollar, he'll give you five, or if you tithe your income, God will bless your business and it will grow 90% from what you gave, okay? Don't get me wrong, he might do that. And he certainly does do that for his children sometimes, but... On the flip side, what else might he do in his sovereignty and wisdom? He might deem it better to have it burned to the ground and you go bankrupt. And that would be better for the gospel plan that he is implementing. Would it not? Of course. And so we don't sacrifice things to get more things. That's idolatry, right? We don't view it, okay, I'm going to give this much to God because then he's going to bless me and I'll get all this. That's idolatry. Okay, that's health, wealth, and prosperity nonsense, which is a false gospel. We sacrifice instead to God simply because we know what he sacrificed for us. And we know that he's a good God who will turn our sacrifice into blessing in one way, shape, or form. Though Christ had everything, he set all of that aside at great cost to himself. Read Philippians. Though Christ had total freedom, what did he do? He set his freedom aside to be bound, to be beaten, and to be bloodied. Though Christ had all of this and more, he set it all aside to follow his Father's commission, to die for the sins of men. Why? As we just sang in the song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, to bring many sons to glory. And if Christ was willing to do that for us, why on earth wouldn't I be willing to sacrifice some of my freedom in order to serve him? And especially knowing that whatever I give to him, yes, it's not going to translate directly over into more money, but it will translate into more blessings in some way, shape, or form, whether in this life or the life to come. Store up treasures in heaven, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Why? Because we can store up treasures in heaven. We can take the currency of this world, which is quickly going out of currency, which is going to be worth nothing very, very soon, and we can exchange that church for a currency that will last for all of eternity. Why on earth wouldn't we make that trade? If you knew the American dollar was going to, it probably will maybe, but if you knew the American dollar was going to be worth literally nothing one year from now, and you knew of another currency which was worth nothing right now, but would be worth 50 times more than the American dollar a year from now, would you make the trade right now and live poorly to do so? It's a no-brainer. Of course we would. And so why not live for Christ now knowing that he has our perfect good in his mind? He will take care of us. He will supply all of our needs. In Matthew 9, 37 through 38, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. May we as a church labor for him out of the joy of knowing his great love for us as demonstrated by the labor he went through in order to make us sons and daughters of the king. Father, we thank you for this text. Lord, I just pray for this church now that we would be transformed by your word through the power of your spirit, Father. We just ask that we would live by these things.
And so, Lord, we just, we just thank you for Christ. We thank you for the salvation we have, knowing that we don't appreciate it as we should. So may today, Lord, help us to appreciate it more. Help us to grow in that appreciation, to grow in our thankfulness. And help that appreciation and that thankfulness then to motivate us to live for you. Father, we pray for our church. We just pray that uh, the sermon today and the sermon last week, that you would powerfully use it in the lives of your people. We just thank you for the challenge Pastor Bob gave us to store up treasures in heaven as we can look for uh, planting seeds beyond just what we can plan in our lifetime. So we ask, Father, that you would bless us as we endeavor to uh, embark on this new building. Help your people to see the need. Help them to see um, the use that we can use it for to further the gospel. And so, Father, whether it be the dollar a week club thing Bob talked about or whatever, help us to look all within our own budgets to see how we can give towards the kingdom, towards kingdom work, how we can store up treasures in heaven, not just, though, with our monies, but also with our lives as we live for you. And so, Father, I pray that as a church that we would all determine in our hearts to give what we should give for you, that we would give cheerfully, not begrudgingly. And so, Father, I just pray that you would press upon your people that they would give that they would come up with what they decide for this and give regularly and pledge to keep doing so as you continue to provide for them. Father, I just thank you for the baptisms we're going to have today and then the ones also we're going to be having at the end of the month. And so, Father, we just thank you for the way that you're working in people's lives. Father, help us to keep reaching those who are distant from Christ, those who are not your sons and daughters but are your enemies, for they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Help us to live for you. May we be found faithful. Help us to have a great afternoon together as we reflect upon what baptism means. It doesn't save us, but it's a reflection of the salvation that has occurred in us all. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.